Good morning. morning. So two weeks ago, I was reading the Soul Matters packet for this month, which is balance. Soul Matters suggested that balance could mean different things. It could mean being calm and rested. It could be finding our center. Balance could be a source of strength. All that made sense, but I was still not finding the thing that inspired me to give a sermon, and time was getting short. Then in the list of book references in the back, one caught my eye. The title of the book is Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked by Adam Alter. I thought, now there's a topic I could get into. So I bought the book from Amazon on my phone, delivered it to my Kindle app where I could read it on my phone, my iPad, or my iPad mini. I'm just establishing my credentials here, okay? My professional career uh, was in technology the last two decades of it at Microsoft. And as a career, it served me well. I got to do work that was very satisfying to me. I got to work with great people on some great teams. But honestly, I've never been fascinated by technology for its own sake. What excites me is the good things it can do for people, especially since the technology I, I worked on was used by so many people. I sure hoped it did good things for them. Personally, I want technology that helps me live my life in a more fulfilling way, that helps me maintain relationships, that simplifies the mechanics of my life, that helps me learn more to get more done. I want technology that I use, not technology that uses me. So what I want to talk about this morning is how technology can affect our lives in negative ways, how it can completely throw our lives out of balance, and offer a few thoughts about what we might do about that. A disclaimer, this is a big topic, uh, and this just scratches the surface. But I thought we should start on a positive note uh, and remember how enabling technology can be. You know, with email, file sharing, video conferencing, we can organize and collaborate in teams of people in way more efficient ways than we used to be able to. Our church extensively uses technology to organize our committees and run the activities of the church. As a great example in the story this morning, grandparents can see and build relationships with their grandchildren living far and away. Judy and I do that all the time with our granddaughter in Philadelphia. I saw my grandparents maybe half a dozen times when I grew up in New Jersey and they lived in Texas. And flying there with the family was a big deal. We use it in North Lake here in our services to enrich the worship experience with video and to help us sing together. We've used it to help our choir learn music. We use it for sharing all kinds of information across our members and friends. We use it to organize Summerfest. The ministerial search team, of which I am a member, uh, is using it to manage vital but, the vital but complicated process of finding the right minister for our congregation. For example, you'll be receiving an online survey that's one of the ways we use to gather information about who we are so we can inform the potential ministers, and what we want in a minister. It's just one way we'll do that. We'll also have cottage meetings where people have the opportunity to interact and reflect together. You'll hear more about that later. The UUA, the UUA has a, a technology platform that manages this, this dance or this dating process uh, between congregations and ministers, a process, by the way, that's regarded as a best practice among denominations. It would be way harder without technology. 
But technology can also be negative. Uh, one common way, uh, it can be too complicated and frustrating to use. That's a very rich topic, but not for today. Another uh, negative that has personally affected me is it can be very distracting. Uh, I've used emails since 1979 and have long uh, been dependent on it. It's so much more efficient for certain types of communication, transactional, complex, archived, asynchronous communications. I can send it uh, when, when that works for me and you can read it and respond when that works for you. It's so much better for certain, certain types of things than a phone call or than, than snail mail. Uh, and email, uh, but the volume of email has gotten very high. The importance of most of the email you likely get is low. Email programs helpfully pop up to show you the newest email that you simply must read immediately and then, of course, respond to immediately. Did you know that in offices, this study was done, 70% of emails are read within six seconds. It can take up to 25 minutes, if you're working on something complicated, to re-immerse yourself in the complicated task. So if you get maybe 25 emails a day, they're sort of spaced out, you basically can't do anything complicated. Um, and I used to get, just to put that in perspective, about 200 emails a day at work. Uh, the reality was, I didn't do anything complicated, so. <laughs> and it's not just disrupting, uh, it, uh, it can even be addicting. I'm a person that likes to get things done. Every time I respond to an email, if it feels like I got something done, I feel a little satisfaction. Virtually, I'm working with other people, often enjoying the interaction, feeling like I'm part of something. With that much fun happening, uh, when I'm not there at my computer, I feel the need to check my smartphone to see if there's any new important interruptions all the time. Now, this will likely not surprise you as much as it initially surprised me. It can affect your relationships with other people. <laughs> I met a former colleague for a beer one day. We were having a fine discussion, uh, and he abruptly ended it when I pulled out my phone just once to check it. I learned from that. I'm no longer the first person to pull their phone out. But I've learned even more from my resident coach, my wife, Judy. My phone habits uh, were a point of frustration for both of us. Uh, and then by focusing first on a relationship, I was able to see more clearly how my habit was affecting us. It's a little bit, this is a little bit of a digression. There is a book called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Any, any of you ever heard of it? I highly recommend it for anyone in a relationship. It identifies five different languages that speak to people, and it helps you, uh, helps you figure out where your primary and second, secondary languages of love are. The key is for your partner to understand this and to show their love to you through the language that speaks to you, not the language or not necessarily the language that speaks to them, which could be different. One of Judy's primary languages was what's, what the author calls quality time. And surprise, that includes me not looking at my phone, but focusing on her or on us. So if I don't give her enough phone-free time, I'm literally not expressing my love in a way that she can feel. So I changed some. Still working on it. It's a journey. 
Email, though, is just a precursor. Uh, today, there are technologies in our lives that are far, have far more addictive potential. In fact, some of them uh, have even intentionally been designed to be addicting. More on that later. So behavioral addiction is a form of addiction. This is a, I'll quote the definition from the book. Form of addiction that involves a compulsion to engage in a rewarding non-drug-related behavior, sometimes called a natural reward, despite any negative consequences to the person's physical, mental, social, or financial well-being. Some of the traditional examples of that were gambling, uh, shopping to excess, shoplifting. Uh, those were behavioral addictions. Now it's technology that's rapidly creating a whole new series of addictions. Addictive behaviors and drugs activate the same reward center in the brain, according to Claire Gillen, a neuroscientist who studies obsessive and repetitive behaviors. The addictive drug or behavior produces a pleasurable sensation or reward by releasing dopamine into the brain. The dopamine release is much higher level from drugs than it is from addictive behaviors. But in both cases, repetition builds up tolerance, which requires a higher level of drug or of the behavior to escape the lull in between. A programmer who, who became concerned about his own smartphone use wrote a usage app tracking app that he called Moment, uh, and he ran it on his own phone, discovered he was using his phone about an hour a day, not counting music. Uh, then somebody used that in a study and found that most people spend between one and four hours a day on their smartphone. And in a poll, 46% of people say they couldn't live without their phones. Some would rather suffer physical injury than lose their phone. 80% of teens check their phone once per hour. That's an addiction trend. And like any addiction, it can take over your life with a wide range of, of consequences, ranging from irritation to you or your partner, or literally to take over your life. A team of psychologists did a study where two strangers are, meet each other uh, for the first time in a room. They have a conversation, and then they rate the quality of that conversation. To kind of get things off, uh, they, uh, they were told to first describe something, an interesting event that had happened to them in the last month. And these conversations were done in two ways, okay? In one case, they were done with a pad and pencil sitting on the table next to the two people. In the other case, there was a smartphone sitting there, just sitting there. The ratings were consistently about 10% worse if the phone was present, not in use, just sitting there. If you use your phone at night, it can affect your sleep. Blue light signals to your brain that it's morning and it drops your melatonin levels, reducing your sleep quality. The iPhone has a night shift mode that decreases the blue in the display. You can even set it automatically to go to night shift every night. You might ask why I know so much about this. <clears throat> Tech is also impacting. <laughs> I'm watching my wife here in the second row, <clears throat> Judy. Tech is uh, impacting our ability to concentrate. Microsoft Canada reported from a study that in 2000, the <laughs> this is a little hard to believe, but it was in the book. In 2000, the average human attention span was 12 seconds. By 2013, and, and remember that these, the, the addictive technologies we're talking about have really evolved in the last literally 15 years. 
In 2013, it had fallen from 12 seconds to eight seconds. And, um, and according to Microsoft, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. <laughs> that is not evolution, that's devolution. So clearly a technology behavioral addiction can take over your life and displace the things that you know intellectually you would find more fulfilling and enriching. In the most extreme case, it can take your life. In 2015, uh, you may remember this, a gamer died in an internet cafe after a three-day gaming bench. It's one of these places that was open 24 hours a day. He came in, three days later, they found him dead, slumped over the console. I remember hearing about it, I looked it up, and uh, yeah, so anyway. Here's the key point. In the right conditions, anyone can become an addict. Uh, there was, it, this was discovered actually in the, uh, in the first study by an accident. Uh, electrodes were placed in the brains of rats in a, in a center of the brain that would produce pain if they, if they received a, a small shock. And then it was connected to a paddle, if they press the paddle, they get shocked. So most, you know, the, the rats were all averse to pressing the paddle, except for one rat. And that rat kept pressing the paddle about every 10 or 15 seconds until the rat dropped dead 24 hours later. And uh, so as they were trying to figure out what happened, they discovered that the electrode was bent, so it didn't go into the place in the brain where they thought it went. It went to a pleasure center uh, in the brain instead. And it, it basically, uh, they, you might say, was it that rat? And they re reproduced exactly the same result when they put the electrode in the pleasure center in the rat. That's, that's the fundamental of addiction. Here's another thing to understand. If you remove the conditions, it's much more likely that the addiction can be cured. In Vietnam, the conditions of boredom and stress that soldiers faced, coupled with a cheap and easily available source of heroin, led to an alarming addiction rate. The Army tried to address, aggressively control drug access and, and to rehabilitate the addicted soldiers. The relapse rate in Vietnam was 95%. 95% relapse. Further alarmed, they commissioned a study of the returning vets. But once out of the conditions that had fostered the addiction, when they were back home with their normal day-to-day -day activities and relationships and work and just shopping and things like that, the, rate, uh, the relapse rate was 5%. So knowing that these two things is important uh, to figuring out how to prevent and recover from behavioral addictions. Technology can be deliberately designed to be addictive. I won't go into detail, but in the book, Irresistible, a large part of the book is, is dedicated to talking about how this is done. And there are six key elements uh, of goals and progress and escalation, uh, what they call uh, cliffhangers, uh, and social interaction. There's a, 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 a massively online game, uh, World of Warcraft, uh, which is a great example of this. I have never played. Um, but it's uh, it's a multiplayer game, so it has a social interaction piece, and uh, half of the five million people that play it uh, online consider themselves addicted. Facebook and Instagram have addictive elements encouraging you to like what others post. Uh, then you post something and it tells you whenever someone liked or commented, so you have to go see, of course, uh, and pretty soon you're posting for the likes. Uh, that's the reward. Facebook magically shows you the things you're most interested in by carefully tr tracking whatever you do. 
It basically grooms you to be as active a, a Facebook user as possible. So as adults, we've experienced all this in the last 10 to 15 years. Kids are growing up with it. Uh, today, it's estimated that a child between the age of 8 and 18 spends a third of their time sleeping, a third of their time at school, and a third of the time on devices with new media. When kids communicate by texting, uh, they're not looking at the people, they can't see the people, so they don't build empathy. They don't get to observe somebody's face when they send them something mean. They only feel what they feel when they send something mean, which might be an immediate sort of perverse satisfaction. Reinforcement of the worst behavior doesn't bode well for the future. As one parent said, I'm not raising kids, I'm raising the adults that they'll be. So, what about, uh, what are some of the, the solutions? The most critical thing is to be aware of technology's impact on your life uh, and the life of your children. Choose technology carefully. Apps that engage kids, cause them to think and interact with adults are best. The most effective forms of online learning for college level courses have been found to be a, a combination of online lecture, short online lecture segments followed by interaction uh, with teachers and other students and some simple online testing. Simplistically, there are two ways to deal with behavioral addictions. Either eliminate the behaviors or harness them for good. It's not news to most parents uh, that it's vital to moderate and control your kids' use of technology. Ironically, the technology leaders, the guys that build this, they know it. In 2010, Steve Jobs told a New York Times interviewer that his kids had never used an iPad. We limit how much technology our kids use at home, unquote. Huh. A study was done testing two groups of, of children in terms of, of taking them out of the environment. Uh, a study was done testing two groups of children for their sensitivity to emotional cues. And they were tested twice, once at the beginning of the week and once retested, same test, at the end of the week. And their scores went up a little bit because of the retesting. But that happened consistently across the two groups. In one of the groups, during the week, the kids went off to a camp where they had absolutely no access to technology. The behaviors were effectively blocked. In the other case, the kids were just at home where they normally were. The kids who went to camp consistently scored higher in the second test, beyond, above and beyond the retaking the test uh, than, the other, than the other kids did. So you remove the, the technology and they can recover. Or remove the behavior is a better way to do it because the technology is here to stay. An example of harnessing the, the addictive capabilities for good. Uh, John Breen was a programmer whose son was struggling to learn words for the SAT. Uh, John designed a game that randomly presented words and, uh, and then asked the player to choose the best definition from a list. John also happened to run a website educating people on world poverty. And he thought to combine the two, and a site called freerice.com was born. I don't know if anybody heard, I hadn't heard of this until I read about it. Uh, if, you, if you play the game, if you choose the right definition for the word, a grain of rice is donated. He sells ads on the site. If you get enough people on the site, you make enough money from the ads, you can buy more rice. Uh, so if he gets lots of player, he can buy a lot of rice. He uh, launched in October 2007 and raised 830 grains of rice on the first day. What's that, maybe a cup? Two months later, he raised 300 million grains in a single day. 
In 2014, freerice.com raised its 100 billionth grain, enough, enough to feed 5 million adults for a day. And a lot of words were learned along the way. What can you do about an existing behavioral addiction? It's important to remember a behavioral addiction has three elements. It has what's called the cue, whatever it is that prompts the behavior, the process, uh, which is the behavior itself, and the reward, the payoff that motivates the behavior. And one of the options, uh, and they use the example of, of people trying to change the behavior of biting their nails. Uh, you know, if they start to fidget, that's the cue that says um, they're going to be biting their nails soon. Uh, and what they can do instead, for example, is, is squeeze a stress ball a certain number of times. So you can find some alternate behavior and train yourself to implement that. Uh, you can offset the reward with a consequence. My son, Brian, also here this morning, told me about uh, phone-free dinners out with his friends. I hope I've got this story right since he's hearing it. Everyone puts their phone on the table. The first one to pick it up pays the bill. So not, they have to look at their phones and not touch them. It's great training. And then for deeply entrenched behaviors, there are professionals and rehabilitation programs that specialize uh, in behavioral addictions. So what's the future look like? A decade ago, who would have predicted that Facebook would have 1.5 billion users, most of whom say they wish they spent less time on it? Or that Instagram would have 60 million new photos posted every day? Or that 20 million people would count their every step on a device on their wrist? These experiences didn't even exist in 2000, and by 2030, it'll be a whole new set. Truly immersive experiences like virtual reality have not yet gone mainstream. Uh, virtual reality can feel so real, it can literally change people through the intensity of being there in a horrible situation. That could be used for news. You could be there in Syria, for example, as the war goes on. And what happens when virtual reality becomes the substitute for actually being there? We're really just beginning the climb of the impact of technology on us. Ultimately, it's up to us. So one final quote from the book. Our attitude to addictive experience is cultural. And if our culture makes space for work-free, game-free, screen-free downtime, we and our children will find it easier to resist the lure of behavioral addiction. So let's do it. Mm -hmm.